Well, we continue our series looking at the life of David, and I was actually planning, um, as I planned out this series, to skip chapters 21 through 23, in large part because it's just a number of vignettes of little stories from David's time in the wilderness, and I was afraid I was going to have to take them one at a time and get bogged down. Well, I got into it this week and decided I had to go ahead and address these these um, vignettes, these stories, because there is a through line that I think is really important for us that runs throughout these stories. Um, and they're important stories because it's the way we, I think, best learn how um, and how true good theology gets in our hearts. We normally learn how to read the Bible via um, Paul. The way we as church people, we, we think of uh, great sermons as something like what Spurgeon does, where he takes one line and preaches for an hour and a half on one line. And, and we think of Paul about how he packs in tons of theology in one verse. But the, the ancient way of doing it, perhaps um, not necessarily the more effective way, but I would say the more folksy way of doing it, has been historically been through story. And that God is communicating something, and the narrator of 1 Samuel is communicating something very profound here about God's provision. God's provision. Because it is these stories that we, in these, uh, this series of stories, we're going to show you seven of them this morning. And which we see which God is moving and working even in the midst of a season of your life that you might consider to be the wilderness. David in chapter 21 through 23 is now in the season of life known as his wilderness wanderings. Where he is running away. He's running for his life from Saul. He is in a desperate condition. In fact, um, the first these three chapters could be summed up in chapter 21 verse 10 when it says this. That David rose up and fled on that day before Saul. That this is a season in which he is constantly on the run, constantly under suffering, constantly in the wilderness, in the desert, and in caves. And in so doing, David is following a pattern that runs throughout the scriptures. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you're a Christian, and one of the, the people of God, it is not an elective. Suffering in wilderness life is not an elective we need to choose. It's a core class in God's curriculum for sanctification. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. For example, Abraham. God came to him with this great call. I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. Now leave your family and go wander without home for the rest of your life. Then we get to Moses. Moses, even though he was raised in Pharaoh's household, before he becomes the leader of Israel, he is sent out in the desert where he's going to care for sheep for much of his life. Israel, after they're saved from Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, where do they spend the next 40 years? Wandering in the wilderness. We see the same thing with John the Baptist in the New Testament. We see Jesus does it, where he goes and spends 40 days out in the wilderness. One thing that everyone here in this room needs is a theology, what I might call the theology of the cave. The theology of the wilderness. In other words, it's a theology of suffering. So that when the darkness comes, not only will we be, not be surprised, but we won't be undone by it. Because we have had certain things, certain stories, truths of who God is... Pressed into us. And so the question for us would be, in many ways, that we come to this, is what good? Why does God allow us to go through these times? Why does God allow David to go through this? Well, to show us who he is. You will not know who God is as a refuge until you need a refuge, right? The cave is the dictionary in which David learned the definition of God being his refuge. The wilderness is the place where he learns that. And so this stretch of narrative from chapter 21 through 23 is there's a theme that runs throughout it that I'm going to show you in seven different stories in which Yahweh shows that he is here to provide for you in the midst of the wilderness. 
So this is going to be, I'm going to literally just, um, this is three chapters. We're going to have to move through it quickly. I'm not going to be able to say much about each of these stories, but essentially just try to explain briefly and then glean these little nuggets from each of these stories. And hopefully it will be just like cluster bombs all over you. That you just, God's provision and you just kind of feel bombs from all of these stories and realize in all these stories how God is here to provide for you in the midst of whatever wilderness or suffering you may be experiencing now. Or might experience in the future. Alright, story one. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. I'll pick it up there. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone? And why is no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. In other words, real quickly, what does David do? He's lying. It's false. Moving on, verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? He asked him. Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. And the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will the vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to replace by hot bread on the day in which it is taken. All right, a couple things here to, to get to the point. First, we've got to get some stuff out of the way. First, David very clearly here conceals the truth. He speaks falsely. But real quick, we, we must ask the question, why does David deceive or speak falsely to Ahimelech? He doesn't tell us. We can only guess. It could be that he's trying to protect Ahimelech in case Saul comes after him. And when Saul comes and asks Ahimelech, hey, why did you provide food for David when he's running away from me? Ahimelech has an alibi. Well, David told me he was on a mission for you, Saul. So don't be mean to me. Maybe that's what David's doing. Perhaps not. In either case, this is important. The text neither condemns nor justifies David's lying here. That you have to understand that not every place in the Bible is the Bible trying to glean and speak long, in long-winded form about various ethical questions. There is a larger story being told here that trying to dive into the ethical questions of whether this was an okay time for David to speak falsely or not. Instead, the better question we should be asking is, what is God doing here? And what we see that is in the provision of the bread. Now here we need a little bit of explanation as well. David is on the run from Saul. He has no food. And remember, there's not, this is a time and place where there's not just a hamburger stand to pick up food anytime you want. And even bread takes quite a process to make. And so if there's no bread, if all the bread has been eaten, it's going to be a while before someone can provide for him. And he needs to grab bread and get on the move. And so the priest says the only thing that's available is this thing called the bread of presence, or what he calls holy bread. And the bread of presence were these 12 loaves of bread, each representing one of the tribes of Israel, that was put in the holy place just outside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was there to be a memorial offering of worship to God, to remind the people of what God had done for them in the wilderness. And every Sabbath day, the bread was replaced, because the bread, it was there for six days, and, and then it would be replaced with a whole new set of bread. And once the old bread was removed, the priests could then eat it. But we see in Leviticus chapter 24, only the priests are given permission to eat this bread. But what we see here is that God allows, or it appears that Ahimelech and David will allow, that David will be allowed to eat this bread because there's a rule that may supersede this, this law. There's a the law that says, hey, only the priests have permission to eat this. 
But there's actually maybe a more greater overarching law, which is the provision of man. That if one is possibly going to die, that he needs this bread of presence, then that usurps necessarily the rule about only priests eating it. In short, though, if I can get to the point, and if we can cut through all the ethical and the legal challenges of the scene, what we see is this, and the point is this, is that the Lord, while David is on the run, here at the very beginning, provides the most basic thing we need. Bread. Food. The whole purpose, understand this, of the bread of presence was to be a memorial act of worship before the Lord that reminded God's people was an act of praising God for His provision when. When the people of Israel were in the wilderness wandering and God provided what? Bread from heaven. In other words, what the narrator is communicating in this little vignette is this. That David should be seeing this as God's provision of the very bread of presence to him. Is that God, bread from God himself, is being given to David in the midst of a season in the wilderness. That yes, there's difficulties and troublings here, but yet God has provided David his daily bread. What do we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, Lord in heaven, give us our daily bread. You see, this is something that gets lost on us as Americans who are primarily we're overweight because we're overrun with so much food. But in the vast majority of history, the vast majority of the world, food is sometimes not readily available. And the idea of starvation is actually quite there on the forefront of one's mind. And the very thought that one has bread today is God's act of provision and blessing upon your life. Could you even take one little thing, even if you're in a season of deep suffering, even a season in the cave, a place of, of death, and destruction, perhaps an emotionally difficult season of your life. And yet, every day, if you can wake up and see that God has provided me food yet today. He has sustained my life yet today. And we see that it's not just for perfect people that get this. Because you look at this text, and you, there's a number of places, there's at least two places here in the story, where you go, man, they, this may not be the most ethical, ethical thing in the world. They would lies. And then each bread to a priest. Listen, that may or may not be right or wrong, but we look at this and go, maybe David didn't deserve this kind of bread at this moment. But isn't that the beauty, the beauty of the gospel? Isn't that the beautiful truth? Because if God only provided daily bread to those who deserve it, we would all be a lot thinner than we are today. <laughs> because none of us actually deserve it, and yet God has given it to us day in and day out, providing the rain and the sun for the evil and the just. And he provides for his people, and this is what David is reminded of here. He's reminded about the history of Israel, that God is going to provide for you. Just as I walked and provided bread for the people of Israel, as you move into the wilderness, sign of the time of your life, David, I'll provide bread for you as well. Now we move on, verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And here I just want to stop and point out something really quick about how you read the text. If you're watching a kid's movie and you have the hero who's about to go off on his journey, but you see someone who works for the evil villain and he's lurking behind a corner and he sees your hero in the story and suddenly there's eerie music. That's what's going on here. That's what Doeg is. It's okay, there's a problem here. We have a spy in our midst. This is the camera turning into the beady-eyed, narrow guy who's going to become a spy for Saul. Verse 8, we continue on. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said to him, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth, behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. 
Give it to me. Now, once again, brothers and sisters, remember, beloved, not only has David been reminded of God's provision of bread in the wilderness, now he gets a reminder here. And if you see in this, a couple things are building. The whole narrative itself is building. We have Doag. This is the bad news. This is the guy working for Saul. The, the story, the narrative is building intention because now Doag's going to go tell Saul where David is. And yet at the same time, we find our hero of the story, we find David has taken hold of the swords. But not just any swords. This sword is again God speaking to David. And God giving David a reminder. Just as he gave him the bread of presence, reminding about, about how he has provided for the people of Israel in the past, in the midst of the wilderness, what would the sword of Goliath remind David of? And to us as the reader, it's to remind us of this. That yes, remember that scene just a couple chapters ago where you faced a giant and God won the victory for you? You take up that sword again. As a reminder, as a reminder of the fact that God has been provided for you in the past. And third, it actually ushers us into the next scene and our next story this morning. So we see God provides daily bread. He provides a reminder of God's past provisions, both in the, in the Goliath sword and the bread itself. Then the second story, we see this. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. Read along in your Bible. So David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the mad, this, man, mad man, this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now we're in there. Now if you read this, and you, it's, perhaps you miss it. But what's going on here is David runs from Nob 23 miles. And he runs to where? Gath. Now, a little bit of Bible history here. Just to remind you. Gath. Who was born and raised in Gath? Goliath of Gath. Goliath, this is Goliath's hometown. David goes into the camp of the enemy. This one can scarcely believe it. David is pleased to Achish, the king of Gath. This would be like a cow walking to a meat grinder. That's what he's doing here. Yet David is here showing up in Gath, and not only does he show up in Goliath's town, what does he show up holding? Goliath's sword. Now you have to understand back then, a Goliath, one, one, he's probably the biggest guy in town. He has a fairly well-known sword. And back then, swords were like cars for guys today. We're like, you just kind of lay the sword down. Everybody just kind of looks, oh, that's a good sword. And they, they, everybody knows the sword in Gath. Everybody knows who this is who's just walking in. Not only that, but they know the song, don't they? Who is it who resides in Gath? It's saying, they sing the song about Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Okay, of what people were the tens of thousands that David had slaughtered? It was Philistines. David is walking into Gath where he is persona non grata, where he is public enemy number one. And yet what this shows us is how desperate David must be. That there is nowhere else to go. That he is fleeing from Saul and there's no one else to go. And so much so that he has to flee into enemy territory. And perhaps he thinks maybe that he can, you know, win a PR move here for Achish. 
One of Saul's chief lieutenants, David, went over to the side of the Philistines and he defected. They'd be like, you know, the, the Americans bring over some great Russian scientist of the, the, during the Cold War. Perhaps that's what happens. But it, apparently, Achan's advisors are reasonably suspicious of David. And so they appear to arrest him. And so David must turn to plan B. And my goodness, what a bizarre plan B it is, right? <laughs> David turns to acting. And apparently, just as he seems to be good at so many other things, he's pretty good at it. He dabbles nonsense graffiti on the doors to the town gates, right? More wet work for the Leslie Noakes of Gath and the Parks and Rec Department. And David then foams in the mouth with loud spittle just run down his beard. You have to understand that the man's beard was kind of a pride and joy. It was bad. They, they would groom their beards. They would grow them out with great length. It was considered shameful to have anything unclean in your beards. And yet he lets... Gunk run down his beard, and perhaps he begins to, with a little more crazed scratching and some distant staring and some mumbling to himself, he convinces Akish that he is indeed Sark raving mad. And Akish determines, listen, I got enough, enough crazy people on the welfare dole of Gap. Go ahead and send him out of the city gates. Now, why in the world, we have to ask this question, why in the world is this story in the Bible? What's the, if we're going to, what's the lesson, kids? If you just, if you trust in the Lord, you will just, every once in a while, you might have to humble yourself and act like a crazy person. Is that the, is that the lesson here, kids? That, that, is this by luck? Kids, every once in a while, you just got to get lucky. That's, David got lucky. Is that the lesson? That's not the lesson that David gives us. You know, David is also a guy who writes psalms. And he writes psalms about various times in his life. And in fact, he writes two psalms. From this scene of his life. Psalm 34 and Psalm chapter 56. So if you have a Bible, turn over there. Because I'm just going to quote for you just a few places from Psalm chapter 34 and 56 that show us what David thought about this event from his life. Hear this. Psalm 34 verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me. Psalm 34 verse 5. Those who look to the Lord and their, their faces will be radiant and not be put to shame. This is a man who was, did something shameful by letting spit run down his beard. Psalm 34, verse 6. The Lord's angels encamp around me, and they deliver me. Psalm 34, 7. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 56, 4. I trust in God. What can mere fleshly men do to me? And verse 11 of Psalm 56. In God I trust. What can man do to me? David doesn't say, wow, I got lucky. What does David say? What does David say? David looks at that scene, and he knows... There is no reason why I should have been able to fool King Achish. It is only by God's provision that he has saved me from the scene. I was dead meat. Saul had me chasing out of Israel. The king of Gath had me dead to rights in his own city. And yet God has set me free. What we see here in the scene too is this. Is that God has provided mercifully for David. And he's done, through, done so. Even in the midst of David's foolishness. And in fact, through foolishness, if you know anything about the gospel, if you know anything that happened to Jesus on the cross, we'll get to that later. Story 3. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. So David flees. He runs out of Gath. And from there he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were about with him 400 men. The first thing I want to point out about this is how the original hearers would have heard this now. There's a very important word here, that where does David go when he flees Gath? 
a cave. A cave. You see, originally heroes would have heard if David escaped to a cave, and that would be like someone escaping the terrors and the difficulties of life by committing suicide. You see, the cave, where, what do you do with caves back then? Where was Jesus buried? A cave. The use of caves, we think of caves as cool places to visit now. Caves are the places where you go to see stalagmites and stalactites. That's where we go for caves. We go to caves with cool headgear and that kind of thing, but not there. Caves were the place of darkness. It was the place where you went in a last resort. The only reason why you went to caves was to bury dead people or to run from people that wanted to kill you. You people would run from the caves when invading armies would come into their country and they would slaughter everybody in the country. And the few people who could escape, the place that they would go is they would go hide in caves. It is the place of last resort. It is the place of death. And so yet, in the midst of this scene, of David, this place of loneliness, there's something almost humorous that begins to happen. But in it, it's God's provision. See, in Psalm 42, yet again, another one of the psalms of David's luminous wanderings. In Psalm 42, in the heading, it says that David wrote that psalm while he's in the cave at Adullam, this very place. And it says there that he's longing for God's redemption and provision of life. What he longs for is to be surrounded by the righteous. Remember, this is a man who is kind of by himself at this point. He is isolated and fleeing. And he longs for righteous men to be around him. And God answers David's prayer, doesn't he? Sort of. Verse 1 and 2. Everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bittered in soul gathered to David. David says, hey God, give me some righteous people. And God goes, I got none of those. But I got the indebted and the distressed and the bitter. Oh yeah, and I have your family. Oh boy. Remember David and the story of David. They're not, he doesn't necessarily get along with his family so well. They've always looked at him as kind of the peon of the family. And yet it appears now that his own family is having to flee from Saul or perhaps from the Philistines. And so they come to join David. And you have to imagine just David's thought. He's like, sitting here praying to the Lord. God, can this get any worse? David? Oh, no. My family's here. This is, this is God's answer to him. But David prayed to be surrounded. Yet God gives him these people. The folks from debtor's prison and the bitter in soul. God surrounds them with a group of disgruntled, dysfunctional misfits from Israel. Who are fleeing the tyranny of Saul and his leadership. They are in fact rebels that are gathering around this one who they hope will be the future king. Gathering around a future king in order to escape another power. Now it sounds eerily similar if you know your Bible. Because there was another future king that came to the world. And he was gathered around him a bunch of dysfunctional, bitter misfits as well. It's called Jesus and the Disciples. And in fact, it's what the church is today, in which we have a king who is head over the church. And who does God gather into his house? Is it the beautiful people of the world? No, it is the disgruntled, it is the bitter, it's the misfits, it's the, the dysfunctional, it's the indebted. That's who God brings into his house. And in so doing, what God has provided David is not necessarily a bunch of righteous people, but a bunch of people who are in the same place as him. Those who can empathize with him, and those who can actually be a true community with him. See, what God has provided us in the church, the church is the place where you only, your means of admittance is you have to admit you have a problem. The church is, my, my dad used to say this in his own membership class. He used to say this, he said, the church is the best place, is the place, it's the only organization in the world in which the way in which you get in is to admit you don't belong. Admit you don't deserve to be in it. And that is the beginning place for being a part of God's family and God's church. The church, what we saw here, is God gives David a family. 
a church around him. Not a bunch of beautiful people, but a bunch of people who can do community with him. And who will wander with him in the wilderness. Who will come around him and be faithful to him. And from, from this group of dysfunctional, bitter, indebted misfits, who comes out? For us guys, this is the kind of thing we hear about in men's retreats. But in 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's a group of men that are called David's Mighty Men. And this is where they first show up. Out of this dysfunctional bunch of men, some of the world's most terrific warriors, the men who will surround David for the rest of his life, will come from this bunch. God provides his people. In the midst of the wilderness, remind, remember this, God provides you a church that can empathize with you. Not a bunch of people who are above you, but a bunch of people who are in desperate need of a Savior just like you. And he says, come in and be a family together. Enter the cave. May that be your sanctuary. It goes on, though. We see God's provision continue. Verse 3. And David went from there to Mizpah to Moab. And he said to the king of Moab. David's like, okay, I like these 400 dudes. They may be a little bit bitter. may have some debt back home. That's all right. But I got to give it to mom and dad. They're slowing me down. So he goes to Moab and he says this. Please let my father and my mother stay with you. So I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, real quick here. Why in the world would the king of Moab allow David to come into his land? And why would he take care of David's parents? Why, why, what's going on here? I mean, David should be an enemy of Moab. And, and, and no, no good self-respecting Israelite is going to go down to Moab and give his parents to Moabites. Well, there's a reason why. It's because Moabites are kin to David. They're the rotten cousins. You might remember this about David's lineage. Who is David's great-great-grandmother? Naomi and then Ruth. Now the story of Naomi and Ruth, we have to go back to the, Ruth, the book of Ruth, in which we find Naomi. It's another story about living in the wilderness of sorts, in which Israel's in a famine, so she and her husband flee, and they take her boys, and they, her boys go to Moab, and they go to Moab, and they marry these two girls, but then her boys die, and then her husband dies. And what we find in the story of Ruth is the story of great and wonderful redemption. But there's also something here in which you're going, why in the world was Moab involved in that whole story? We see it here. That God, hundreds of years later, is using their kinship to Moab to perhaps make bring the welcome mat for David to be able to drop his parents off so he's not dragging them all over the wilderness with him. In other words, what I, what I want to bring to you is this. I'm providing you a lot of ways in which God provides for us in the midst of our suffering and the wilderness of this life. But understand this. There are going to be certain things in your life and seasons of your life that you're going to get out. And you're not going to know why in the world God took you through it. In which there's going to be seemingly no earthly reason why you went through that season of suffering. You go, I don't feel like I love Jesus more. I don't feel closer to him. I don't see some great lesson in my life I've learned. It was just suffering seemingly for the sake of suffering. And understand this, there are going to be seasons in your life where that may happen, and you may never know until one place. Until you get to some place like we have here with someone who has the view, the 30,000-foot view of redemptive history, and that place will be heaven, in which what we'll be able to do is sit at the feet of Jesus, and you're going to go, now what in the world was that season of my life? And he goes, come on, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story of how I used that to provide for David's parents. Hundreds of years after you. You may never know. You may never know, but Jesus tells really good stories. You may not know the end, but you'll know it in heaven. Story 4. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 5 through 23, 14. We're going to bounce around within this long section really quickly. Verse 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. 
Real quickly, Gad is a what? Prophet. That's going to come back in a second. Remember that. He's a prophet. Then, verses 5 through 19, I'm not going to read it. But what the narrator does is give us a look back. Hey, whatever happened? How did the story end at Nob and Ahimelech and the priests? Well, it ended badly. So Saul, because Doag, Doag, the beady-eyed, narrow-eyed Doag, finds out what is going on. And he goes and he snitches on David and Ahimelech, and he tells Saul what has gone on. And so Saul hears that David has been at Nob, and so he goes to Nob. And he asks Ahimelech, why in the world would you give provide for David the bread? And Ahimelech has the alibi. He's able to say, I, I thought he was on mission for you, Saul. And Saul, in an incredible act of injustice, slaughters Ahimelech and all the town of Nob. By the sword of Doeg. But there's one little silver lining in the midst of it. Verse 20, it says this. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitu, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So remember that. Abiathar has escaped. He's a priest. That's who he is. So we've got a prophet who's come to David, and we've got a priest who's come to David. Pick it up in the beginning of chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and are, they are robbing the threshing floors. So David therefore inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David then said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise and go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Verse 6, Abiathar comes back in the picture. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. That's what priests used to wear. And now it was told that Saul, that Saul saw that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting a harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. That ends that section of Scripture. Here's what I want you to see about this. That in this, the provision that God provides is God provides David his own voice. And a listening ear. We see it in three ways. I point them out. Gad shows up. Gad is a what? A prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet brings messages from God to God's people. So God is speaking to David. Second, we see that David inquires of the Lord two times, and David and God answers him. And then third, we see that Abiathar escapes and brings David the ephod. Abiathar is what? A priest. What do priests do? Priests help go before the Lord to speak on behalf of the people. Therefore, what has God provided David? In the midst of the wilderness, one of the most painful and difficult parts of suffering and living in caves, living in a wilderness life of suffering, is, it, it's so much worse if, when you feel like God has abandoned you. When you feel like God no longer hears your prayers. When you don't feel like he's speaking to you. And yet in the wilderness, what has God provided David? A prophet and a priest. So that he can know and he can hear from the Lord. And that he has access to God. That God will hear him and God will answer him. The same, how much more so for the believers of today, right? Because we have a better prophet and a priest. 
When God has provided Christians today who walk in the wilderness and have seasons of suffering, we have a perfect prophet and a perfect priest in this, and that God has provided for us the eternal and perfect word in Christ Jesus. And God has provided us his very word. So that even in the midst of suffering, you can pick up God's word. You can say, be assured that God has not abandoned me and his voice is still with me. And not only that, but Jesus came to earth and then went back to heaven to be what for us? To be our faithful high priest. It says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4 through 16. That since we have such a great high priest, we come to the throne of grace and we find grace. And it says this, for help just at the right time. What has been communicated in this little story these, over these course of these two chapters is that God has provided his presence for David. That God hears David. He hears his cries. And he's advising David even in the midst of the wilderness. Remember that. That God is there with you when you're in a season of suffering. Story 5. 1 Samuel chapter 23 verses 15 to 18. Then David and his men who were about 600. By the way, as I get into it, you're going to notice I said something wrong last week. I said David and Jonathan did not see each other for the rest of their lives. Totally overlooked this because apparently they do see each other. Here it is. David and his men were about 600 rows and departed from Keilah, and they went up wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. They remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. And David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. What happens here? Once again, God's provision. This time, God provides, once again, a faithful friend for David. You have to understand how beautiful it is in the context of this chapter, chapter 23. Because at the beginning of chapter 23, David goes and saves Keilah, right? And yet he finds out from God that Keilah is going to give him over to, to Saul. Even though he saved them from the Philistines. And then at the end of chapter 23, which we won't read, we see that, that the Ziphites are going to spy out on David. And they're going to tell Saul where David is. But the Ziphites... This is egregious as well. This is treacherousness because the Ziphites are Judites. G David is part of the clan of Judah. These are family members. They should be for David, and yet you're not. Smack dab in the middle of this treachery, Jonathan. In the middle of the wilderness, when it appears that everybody else has abandoned David, God provides that one singular friend, a faithful one who will stand amid all the other infidelities of other people, but who will stand with you and be an encouragement to you. But I want you to see this, that Jonathan was not simply being an encouragement in and of himself. But Jonathan actually points to the Lord himself. You see, there, there is a mantra that is perhaps over, overstated today, which is that when you're around other people who are hurting, you should say nothing. Listen, that is often, saying nothing is better than a lot of being Job's friends, or you're trying to give advice. But we do see that there are certain things that you ought to say, and Jonathan gives us a great example here. Because what does he point David to? Does Jonathan say, David, aren't you, aren't you so encouraged that I'm here? Is that what he does? No, he looks at David and he says, remember the promise, David. Remember the promise. He says, remember, God has said, you will be king. And so when God provides David in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of suffering, he provides a friend who will point back to God's promises. 
who will tell you in the midst of that moment, who will read to you the word of God, of God's goodness to you, and who God is, and what the plans that God has for your life. That's what God provides David. You may have had one of those moments before where you're in a deep, deep pit. A deep darkness of despair or season of suffering. And yet God has found you via a friend who will point you back to the promises of God. It's interesting, Horesh, all the commentators and all the ge- geological work, we never know the find where Horesh is. Saul can't find Horesh. Jonathan did. Jonathan did. Because God will provide a friend who will point you to the promises of God at just the right moment. Story 6. 1 Samuel chapter 23, 24, verse 24 to 29. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the area of in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. So Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side. If they're saying, I read it quickly, we have to feel the building of this text in these two verses. What is it? The Ziphites are now aspiring. They're spying on David. The great thing, the big thing that Saul has always needed is to figure out where is David. He's always escaping his grasp. Where is he? Well, now he's got the Ziphites doing the GPS pinpoint work for Saul. And they're pointing out to Saul, where is David? And now we see that Saul is beginning to circle in like sharks around prey around David. And he's getting closer and closer and closer. And what we see here, the tension is building so much so that what do we see? They're on the same hill. David on one side, Saul on the other. Saul is in hot pursuit. And not only that, but you notice it mentions over and over again that David is in Naon. You have to understand that would have been significant for the people of Israel because they understood what Maon is. Maon, if you remember a scene from the Moody, Lord of the Rings, where, where Frodo's walking through this area in which it's like a bog of just rock and nothing else. You know the scenes in Hawaii now where the volcanic rock, where there's nothing living? That's Maon. There ain't nowhere to hide. It is a hard place. What it means is David is stuck between Saul and a rock place. There is, there is nowhere to go. This is the end of the road. This is the end of the road. It is over. David is dead meat. Then we go to verse 26. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture him, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Huh. Just a wonder, the Philistines happened, just happened to attack. Just happened to attack that day. It just so happened they decided that they were going to attack. And it just so happened that the messenger could find Saul. And it just so happened that Saul maybe didn't realize how close he was to David. It just so happens. Not. This is called the providence of God. In the midst when it feels like you have lost every bit of hope and there is nothing else left when you're at the end of your road, God will provide. God provides. At the very last second, while all earthly options are away, God moves to save his elect. He saves David. And is this providential hand of God moving and working? And who does does God use to save David? The Philistines, the very enemies of Israel, and yet God can use even God's enemies. The people of God's enemies for the good of his people. And this providence that God uses is for us as well. In which there, is time, there may be stories from your own life that you were to look at them, in which you would see how God has provided for you in providential ways. That other people would look at it and go, aren't you lucky? And you go, no, 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 no. That ain't luck. That's the hand of my God. 
preserving me and keeping me. It's not just in the Bible that Yahweh's providential works. His providence works today, today, for you and me. Would you look for those kind of things in your life where you see God moving and working in this way? It's lastly, the text ends it this way. Verse 29. And David went up there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. We see what God's going to provide here. We see that Saul has to leave. But is Saul done chasing David? No. They keep going on with their cat and mouse game for a while. David's distress is not over. His final relief is not arrived. But in the midst of the wilderness, God provides him in Gedi. You know what Gedi means? In Hebrew, it's the two words, spring and eye. It means your eye sees a spring in the midst of a wilderness. Now, what do we call that? A mirage or an oasis if it's real. That's what he experiences. And Gedi is known for being a well-watered place in the midst of the wilderness. Where has God taken David? David has been living amongst the valley, in the wilderness, in the shadow of death. And yet God brings him to a quiet place where there's water. Now, does that sound familiar to you? You should know this. It's called Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And that's the truth of all, so all three chapters here. In other words, David didn't write Psalm 23 for Hallmark. He lived it. It is real. He has been through the valley of the shadow of death, and God has provided him the green pastures and the quiet waters in the midst of it all. And this is the reality. Listen, there may be seasons of your life, and this is God's providence for us. But there may be a time of a season of difficulty. That a season may be months and years of difficult things, of horrendous physical pain, or a relational strife, or emotional sorrow, or depression. And yet, in the midst of it, God is so good to provide us little glimpses. Little taste of heaven. You ever experienced that? You ever been to a worship service and you go, my goodness, that might be a little bit like what heaven's like. That he actually provides you a weekend with friends who are close to you, a little, a little bit of cold water in the midst of a season of difficulty. God is the God who provides that. God is so good to provide for us. Last story. Story 7, 2 Samuel chapter 23. So you have to flip over a whole book. I mentioned them earlier, these 400 ragtag, misfit, dysfunctional dudes that become David's mighty men. In Psalm, 2 Samuel chapter 23, we get this account. And the reason why I go to it is, one, because it's a really cool account. And two, because it's an account that remembers back to this exact same time period in David's life. 2 Samuel 23, and David said this, verse 15, David said the long England. They're remembering back this time while they're in the run. Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gates. In other words, you ever been overseas in a third world country or something like that, and you're sitting around hanging out with your friend, you've been gone for a while, and you, somebody just goes, oh, give me a burger from Burger King. And everybody goes, yes. What are you wanting? You're wanting a taste of home. And in the midst of the difficulty, you're wanting a taste of home. We continue. Then, so what do the three mighty men do? Then, so three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. 
Remember this, Bethlehem is David's birthplace. He's longing for the water of home. And it's, it's doesn't, he doesn't give a command to these three guys. He doesn't go, hey, you've got to do this for me. They just decide to do it. But this is one of the most beautiful scenes of love in all the Old Testament. Because what these three men do, three dudes, they break through a Philistine garrison. They travel 12 miles from where David is, 12 miles of Bethlehem, fight through a Philistine garrison, which means it's at least 20 men. 3 verse 20. They go and they get water. They go back through the Philistine garrison, run 12 miles, and they bring it back to David. And what does David do? <laughs> they give him the water and they've got to be like, like little kids. Look what I brought you. <laughs> Panting for 24 miles of running. And they give it to David. And what does David do? Hey, thanks, guys. <laughs> You're one of those guys who's going to go, ah! No! What are you doing? What is David doing here? Why would he do this? Is this a means of going, I spit on your sacrifice for me? No. He's actually honoring them. What he's saying is this is that you are ready to risk your blood. That's why he mentions this verbiage, this weird verbiage, shall I drink the blood of men who would go at the risk of their lives? He's saying this. These men would risk their lives. There's only one thing that is worth such a sacrifice. One thing. There's only one thing that is valuable enough for that, and it's not me in my taste buds. It is good for only one thing, and that is the worship of the Lord. And he says he poured it out as a drink offering before the Lord. Now, what is David learning in this, and what is God giving to David in the midst of the season in the wilderness? David has given him men who love him. Who love him deeply. David doesn't go as the commander and go, Hey, you three, I need you to go to Bethlehem and give me some water. What do they do? All they do, David's just kind of reminiscing with him. Man, I miss the water of Bethlehem. And these three pipe up and go, let's go get it. That's how deeply they love David. Let's risk our lives to give our commander what he so desperately longs to taste. We will do that. That's the love that God is pouring out for David through these three men. And let me ask you this. Do you have this love? Do you have a friend who would be like, this is